I was in the grocery store on Friday just going to pick up some soup and some rolls for dinner. Corey was out of town, so that's what the kids got. And you would have thought that an alien invasion was forecasted. I mean, just the way that like, people were super aggravated and the shelves were bare uh, because of the potential of snowpocalypse or something. And I, I walked down the, the hot chocolate aisle and uh, I, I noticed that all the good hot chocolate was gone and some poor kid was going to have to take home some sugar-free hot chocolate without the mini marshmallows and they're going to have that xylitol headache the next day. I mean, <laughs> ugh, it's a cruel world. It's a cruel world. I'm being ridiculous, right? But it got me thinking about how common it is to go to the store and to expect a dozen different kinds of hot chocolate there when I want them, to go to the produce section any time of year and get exotic fruits from all around the world and not even think about it. There's like 30 kinds of Band-Aids, by the way. If you have children, you know this. There's like 30 kinds of Band-Aids with different characters on them, and you better know which ones they want. Now, just a a few decades ago, common conveniences like this would have been exceptional, would have been extraordinary if they existed at all in your local supermarket. And you could play that type of idea out with lots of different things like electricity in our houses or air travel. It's amazing we get to do that. Or, Or if you have a smartphone in your pocket or a smartwatch on your wrist, you have more computing power on your person than the computers I had in the 80s growing up, right? Like it's just, it's amazing. These common things were exceptional not very long ago. Today, about two million, or not two million, millions and millions of followers of Jesus will gather together. And they'll gather usually in one place like this, and they'll gather like we are with women and men sitting next to each other and boys and girls. And they'll gather and they'll share life together, whether You know, it doesn't matter what their skin color is or their heart language, and it doesn't even matter their religious upbringing. In Christ, we become one. In Christian worship today, the wealthy and the poor will share meals in common together. The powerful and the jobless will share communion, and addicts will confess their sins right next to therapists and nurses and pastors and middle school students. And nearly every time and every culture or generation, this type of being in common, the common life together, was and is extraordinary. But in the church, it is or ought to be common. How did that happen? How did the early church become church? Well, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit And they responded to the work of that Holy Spirit in them. And last week, just to recap on what we covered, we we saw how Peter, this fisherman, was the first to preach a Holy Spirit-filled sermon. And we explored Peter's message and noticed five elements of a Spirit-filled sermon. They are these, rooted in Scripture. Peter's sermon and every apostolic sermon is rooted in Scripture. points to the person of Jesus. It it referenced three, actually, Old Testament scriptures, Peter's sermon, but they all point to Jesus. Number three, the sermon is convicting, meaning it either is challenging you on something you ought not do anymore, or it's convicting you about something that you could have, the life you could be living. Number four, apostolic, spirit-filled preaching is always bringing good news. 
With conviction comes good news. And number five, apostolic spirit-filled preaching invites a response. If you want to know where the extraordinary common life of the Jesus movement comes from, then we need to look at the response to Peter's spirit-filled preaching. And that's what we're going to do this evening. If you'll stand with me, I'll be reading Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 47. Again, this is in response to Peter's spirit-filled apostolic sermon. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. And with many other words, they, or he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. So then, those who had received his word and were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Lord, we thank you for creating a new community, for creating a new people of God. And that this new community, as radical as, as it is and seems, isn't stuck in a book a long time ago. But it's us, it's here, it's now. We thank you for the things that we share in common with, these, with this early church, and we thank you for the challenge that these words give us about who we can be, who you're calling us to be. And I pray, Lord, that you would meet us in the text, in this preaching moment, encourage us and challenge us, and bring us into good news. Amen. You may be seated. So, these people heard Peter's apostolic sermon, and they're asking what they should do. And of course, Peter tells them to repent, to turn away from the way you've been living, and then to turn to God, turn through his authorized agent, who is Jesus. Then he tells these people to be baptized, to identify with the death of Jesus, and to identify also with the new life in Jesus. He tells them to do this for two different reasons two sides of the same good news coin. They're to repent and be baptized so they can be forgiven of their sins and so that they can receive the Holy Spirit. And so a bunch, not all, of these people who are listening respond in repentance and then as their first step of repentance, they are baptized in Jesus' name and receive the Spirit. The text tells us that 3,000 souls, literally 3,000 people, were added to their number that day. 
And whether or not those numbers are numerically specific 3,000 exact people or they're numerically symbolic, the point of the original, uh, that the original audience would have heard was God was at work, lots of people were thoroughly impacted by the gospel and the power of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus was the one doing the saving. He was the one adding to their numbers. And you can tell by this, this thing we call in Greek grammar called the divine passive. It's in verse 41 where they, they come to be baptized, right? And, and, and it's made explicit in verse 47 which says the Lord was adding to their number daily who, those who were being saved. Who was adding to their number daily? The Lord was doing it. The Lord was drawing people. The Lord was bringing them to conversion and repentance and to baptism. So the point is that Jesus is at work building up the church and the power of the Spirit. And people were joining because they were attracted to the extraordinary common life of the Spirit-filled church. Now, the rest of the passage this evening describes the quality of life that these newly spirit-filled followers of Jesus lived out, that they embodied. This quality of life in the spirit played out in four main practices. I know some of our, uh, our youth are here and you've got notes that you're following along. I'm going to get to those four main practices that you might want. I don't know what Christy's giving you candy or something, but just know it's good for your soul to know the four main practices. These Four main practices have become the four marks of the church. And the first practice is worship. And what we're here doing now. The spirit-filled people were devoted to gathering together, to reading the scriptures, and to hearing the scriptures preached upon by the apostles and early leaders. The apostolic teaching would point to Jesus as the fulfillment of the scriptures and the good news. So we become like what we worship. You've heard me say that before. You've probably read that before because it's true. You become like that which you worship or like the person you worship. So, for example, if we worship power and prestige, our lives, you'll find, will be bent toward activities that stoke our ego. We'll be preoccupied with branding ourselves and putting ourselves out there, as the kids say, right? You, 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 if you're addicted to power, if that's what you worship, you're always putting yourself out there so that you're known and, and recognized. Conversely, if we worship the ideal of the church rather than what the church really is, we'll always be complaining about how things are, ever disappointed that our vision, and we know it's right, of what church ought to be isn't. If we worship our own comfort, we will do anything to reduce our risk, to protect ourselves from potential harm, and to spend our resources on our own pleasure, our own ease, and our own experience. But if we worship Jesus, we'll find ourselves wanting more of him, more of his word, more of his presence, more of his people will be about the things that he's about. You know, Jesus speaks endearingly about the church. He calls it in one spot his bride. And, and if, if we're his bride, then we're going to be lovers of his church, 
lovers of God, which translates into lovers of gathering for worship. Who or what do you worship? Notice that these early worshipers gathered together with the apostles on a regular basis. They gathered in the temple. That's one place they gathered. The temple was absolutely massive. I mean, sometimes my brain slips into, when I hear the word temple, I think a building. I think, oh, it's a big church building. And so they gathered for worship in this big church building, like a megachurch or something. But that's not really how the temple works. Maybe if you've seen pictures of the temple, it's this massive courtyard with walls around it. And on the inside, you know, you've got the holy place and the holy of holies. The actual covered structured area isn't that big. But what people would do is they would go and they would worship in the temple grounds. The temple mount covered 1,527,920 square feet. That's over 35 acres of area. That the, you know, that's the Temple Mount. And so it was common in those days for rabbis and traveling teachers to take their students into the temple grounds and they would find a corner or they would go next to the wall and they would have their speech or their sermon or their teaching with their group of people. There might be, you know, 50, 100 gatherings of people all throughout the temple at one time and they're not talking over each other because they're in their section. And so these early Christians would gather with the apostles together in the temple, at least for the first little while until the temple was destroyed. And the early Christians did the same. They, they shared this common life, but the difference was when they went into the temple, they were able to worship with women and men in mixed company. And their gatherings were extraordinarily common. Common as in shared, not common as in uninteresting. They shared things in common together. The Spirit was at work tearing down walls. The people worshipped together. And and scholars of early Jewish and Christian liturgies believe the common elements of Christian worship were regular gathering of the people, the reading of the scriptures, always the reading of the scriptures, not just preaching, just the reading of the scriptures. The teaching of the apostles, which later became the preaching of the apostles, the apostles' speech, the Gospels, and the early letters of the church. That's what people would speak about and preach on. They gathered to sing and to chant the Psalms. They gathered to pray the prayers of the Psalms, written prayers that they had carried over from Judaism, or prayers of Paul and the other letter writers as the church history went on. They gathered to give of their tithes and their offerings, and they always practiced the Lord's Supper. They always practiced the Lord's Supper whenever they gathered. Now, you may have noticed if you're listening to that litany of things like, huh, we've been intentional about trying to practice on a regular weekly basis these marks of the church in our own setting here at Lettered Streets and most churches in town. There's a quality of life in their being together. Jesus and his spirit draws people together. It's what he's about. And it's an undeniable mark of the church. It's an embodied experience, which is interesting because there's a, a trend now, well, not just now, but like the last 10 years of virtual church, or I'm just going to stay home and listen to a podcast and without being physically, and more importantly, without being socially present. You know, I, I'm, for one, I'm thankful for tools like that. For those who are traveling or when I'm traveling, when we're sick at home and can't be there like we would want to be. And in the rare case, there's people who are isolated. I remember Charlotte's sister Brianna was in a place 
out at, out at Zion where there's just no great Christian community, right? So she would mix it together with Tim Keller sermons and, you know, things like that. It's just, it's just what you have to do sometimes. But for most people, there is an option to gather with the church. In the first century, people gathered together because it was that mixing, that social element of church that was so important. And, and if we're not participating physically and socially and spiritually with each other, we're basically just consuming church. And that's not being part of the church. This leads us to the second common practice of the Spirit-filled church. And that is the fact that they ate together. They ate together and they ate together in mixed company. After our worship gathering today, as we do every Sunday, we're going to do what has become common for us. We're going to eat together. And we're going to eat wherever, and if you can find a spot, especially in the summer, that's more problematic. Uh, and we are going to just find a spot that's open, probably. We're not going to strategically pick our spot based on who do I need to impress or who would it be impressive for me to sit by, right? And we're going to eat in the room that's noisy because there's big kids running around. Tell your kids not to run, still a rule. And we're going to share a meal prepared by volunteers purchased with the pooled money from our tithes and offerings. And for us, this seems like the most common thing of the week, or one of the most common things. We come to church, we eat food, of course, that's what happens. But for most people, for most of time, in most cultures, who you ate with was always a strategic endeavor. In the first century, people would only invite people to dinner who were their social peers or people that they could get something from. They would host dinners to maintain ties of loyalty or to build bridges for social advancement. Breaking bread together was a technical term used to form and strengthen relationships that would happen during a mealtime. The host was clearly the head of the table. And the farther you sat from the host, like literally the further your chair was from the host, everyone knew that your social rank was worse, right? Early historians sometimes write romantically of certain Roman leaders, for example, who thought in the goodness of their heart will invite the poor and the impoverished over to dinner. They didn't have British accents. <laughs> and that wasn't a good one. But my, my point is that when they did this, the historians are quick to point out, yes, they did this sometimes. But the Roman aristocrats sat in literally a different room. So they would have poor people over, but they would put them somewhere else. Basically, it was just providing the food, not the fellowship. They would never mix classes. But in church, the common meal became extraordinary because it was shared in private homes all throughout the city. The wealthy people, by the way, would be the only ones who had homes big enough to host people and who had any kind of finances to pay for food for people. So these wealthy folks would invite people from church over, crossing socioeconomic barriers in the name of Jesus. In fact, even though the wealthy might host and pay for the food, they spoke as if Jesus was the host of the meal. Do you feel how powerful that is? Jesus as the host of every meal. 
The communion meal in formal worship empowered people in the sacramental work of forming new communities in Christ through the breaking of bread. And during these common days of the week, during these common meals on the weekdays, which is extraordinary, these people gathered not only to break bread together, but to worship house to house. So now you've got mixed classes of people, mixed genders of people, not only sharing a meal together, but also worshiping together, singing together, when previously they had been very, very segregated. These weren't house churches in the mold of modern house churches where sometimes, well, I just don't like church, so I'm going to have church in my house. Bam, house church. These people still gathered in larger groups for worship, like at the temple and later on in the synagogues, but they also had small groups before small groups were a thing. They invited people over for dinner. They worshiped together. They read the scriptures together, and they supported each other. The extraordinary hospitality was such a mark of the church that it became a practice that unbelievers marveled at. Unbelievers and, and uh, pagan historians write about some of these early church love feasts and gatherings and that th- this, this new Christian aristocrat just brought over these poor people to his house. Can you believe the scandal? They would write about it as, first of all, as crazy, but then they marveled at it. No longer were there slaves or free in each other's eyes. They were just brothers. No longer were there male or female in the sense of segregation. They were just family. Now, how do you think it would feel to be part of that new community? What if you were from the lower classes and all of a sudden the spirit comes boom and you hear this sermon and you're like, I'm signing up. Where do I sign up? And so you're in line and you repent and you're baptized and then the person right after you is way up here on the social ladder. All of a sudden, next week you're worshiping together and that person invites you to dinner. Less than a week before, they'd never looked at you in the eye. Maybe you were the servant or a slave at a centurion's house. Or maybe you were a low-level person in the marketplace at the Agora. People sent their slaves to go do the shopping. They'd never look at you. They'd never talk to you. Now, there you are in the home. Marble pillars and a courtyard big enough to host 15 or 20 people. Meet for the first time in a long time. How would you feel? How would you feel if the roles were reversed, if you were the government official or the person of authority? How would your non-Christian friends look at you all of a sudden hosting people like that in your house? How awkward would it be? What would you talk about? Would you feel guilty? I wouldn't have even looked at you yesterday, but today this Jesus thing, I'm all mixed up, but I... Would you come to my house? I feel, let's not pretend that everything was just great as soon as the Spirit came. Like people had to work crap out. Like there's reconciliation that has to happen. They have to have conversations. They have to say, I I mistreated you and I thought that you weren't very smart because of, you know, you were just this before. Oh, I thought you were a jerk. You know how many times you walk by my, my little shop but you never... You know that my kid is starving and there's this inequity. What do we do about that? Real conversations, real reconciliation. What better way 
to do that than over breaking bread and a good couple of glasses of wine together in somebody's house. That's, that's why this is so powerful. That's why it's in the Bible that they ate. The result of the Holy Spirit. You, you, what do you think is going to happen? Like if you're writing this story, the Holy Spirit came and then they could shoot lightning out of their hands or they could write the gospel in the sky. No. You know what stuff happened? They're able to speak people's heart languages. They worship together. Does that sound magical or super extra powerful? They broke bread together. Because that's where reconciliation happens. It doesn't happen in skywriting and lightning bolts and all the other cool things that we might think of with Holy Spirit power. It happens when we talk. The power of food. The early church fellowship, in your English Bible it says fellowship. You've heard me say this before, but the Greek is koinonia. It means partnership. Koinonia is the word used to describe a marriage relationship. That's a partnership. It's a powerful concept that evokes the sense of deep commitment, deep investment, mutual back and forth. Like you don't get into a marriage, well, I hope you don't, not if you're doing premarital with me. Um, You don't get into a marriage thinking, what can I get out of this? Right? If you do that, you won't be married very long. Like, marriage is a mutual investment. How can I, what can I do to serve you? What can I do to to help you to thrive? And if you're both doing that, that's going to be a great life together. That's what the church, that's why when Paul's trying to figure out, and Luke is writing this, when they're trying to figure out what is going on in this new Jesus movement, what word could I use to describe these people? I got it, koinonia. It's like a marriage. The other place koinonia is used is in the business world. So when Jesus is on the waterfront and he's going and he's getting, hey, Peter, hey, James and John, sons of Zebedee, come on, follow me. You know what they were? They were koinos. They were business partners. If you go into a business venture and you do it like, what's the minimum I can do? It's not going to go very well, right? When you're in a business partnership, you go all in. So when we're trying to describe what the church is, and they use this word koinonia, they do it on purpose. Marriage, business partnership, mutually in it together. The church of the, in the power of the Spirit is not a group of people looking to see what they can get out of the church. You, you wouldn't go into a marriage or into a business looking to see what you can get out of things. So the church, we're a fellowship or a koinos, a partnership. And we make sacrifices for the good of each other. That's what this is about. And you've noticed that Lettered Streets, we use partnership language instead of membership. And that's just, it's not better. It's just to evoke this idea of koinonia. It means that we partner together to serve using our gifts, whether it's in teaching or music or hospitality or technology or strategy or helping each other by raising up the next generation with working with youth and children. Being partners means doing what it takes to help be part of the bigger ministry, not just to consume the benefits of ministry. So, what I'm really saying is join children's ministry. Talk to Jen. (laughs) Our text describes what happens when people are transformed by the Spirit and they join the church. Those with means were selling their possessions in order to help those in the fellowship who had needs. They took care of each other's needs, uh, even going to the point of sacrificing 
their own comforts and excesses. So we're in Acts chapter 2, but if I just skip up to Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, we get an example. It's better than some example I think of. It's actually in the Bible. And the congregation of all those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common. That's extraordinary. Common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not one needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the, lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as anyone had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which when translated means sons of encouragement, son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we see this example, the ideal, but then also this man Barnabas, who we'll meet later on in the book, actually sells some land and brings the money so it can be distributed among those in need. The grammar here for the word sell and distribute I don't expect you to remember this, but I just got to say it. It's an iterative imperfect, <laughs> which means that it isn't a one-time deal. Uh, you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, um, a lot of people think they were written by this group called the Essenes, that was a very strict religious sect out in the desert, and they tried to follow Torah perfectly. And if you were to join the Essenes, it doesn't matter who you are, the first thing you would need to do is take a vow, uh, and then the second thing is all of your earthly possessions are brought and just laid at their feet, and so they become common good. So if you had a house and a car and a bank account, you just say, well, here's, here's the keys of the car, uh, and here's the house, we'll sell it, and then uh, here's my bank account, and I'm just going to, now it's all common, right? That was what the Essenes would do, and there's a couple other um, ancient Greek sects that would do things like that, but that's not what's going on in the early church. In the early church, in, in fact, that wouldn't even necessarily be wise if we did that today. Um, the idea is that the people wouldn't sell everything they had when they became Christians. The idea was those who had means would give or sell it as the need arose. That's what this uh, iterative imperfect means. It's not just a one-time thing, it's as needed, right? The church of partners saw their belongings and even their social standings as gifts held for the common good. You know, in the ancient world, there's just a massive chasm between the wealthy and the not wealthy. Like, if you're wealthy in the ancient world, you could thousands of acres of land and thousands of head of cattle, and, and so, like, if, if, Andrew, if you needed some help, and you were new brothers in Christ, and I'm super wealthy, what do I do to help Andrew? I just bring him onto my land. I set him up with a little house, and he tends my sheep, and he gets a payment, and you could start a family there, and you can garden there, and that's how it works. That's not typically how it works in the States, is it? Like, we have budgets, <laughs> And we, we lived those budgets, and so like just giving someone, if, if you were to give someone a house, what happens? Well, they got to pay property taxes on that house, and they got to keep up the house, and they got to pay to have the electricity on in the house. Like just giving stuff doesn't mean the same thing. So it doesn't just equate one to one. But here's the point. We live in such a fragmented, individualized world, it's easy to get bogged down and say, well, their economy and our economy are so different, we can't do this. 
The, but the point is this, when the Spirit gets a hold of people, we begin to see our resources for the kingdom. Our resources are for the kingdom, not just for my personal kingdom. We begin to see ourselves as more of stewards of resources, caretakers of resources, rather than earners and owners of resources. Tonight, people will invest their lives losing sleep, some, losing time snuggled at home watching Netflix in their warm homes so that they can serve at the cold weather shelter. That's an investment of a resource that you have. Tonight, people will be warm in this church building, there'll be maybe 25 men in here and 35 to 40 women and children in there. And they'll do that, they'll be warm because these heaters are working because of tithes and offerings, because of the common pooled resources of the church. It's not only, though, the money that's funneled through the church that I see. I see individuals helping friends and neighbors in crisis. I know... Um, some people that were out in the cold literally over this last week put a call out to see if they needed help, and someone else from the church had beat, beat us to it and um, put them up for a few days. These are the stories, I probably don't even know half of them, that happen on a weekly basis in our church community. People leveraging their resources, stewarding their resources to take care of one another. So the result of forgiveness and the Spirit was this community that worshipped together and ate together and partnered together in life and mission. And the fourth mark of the church, living an extraordinarily common life, is prayer. Now, of course, I could have covered prayer in the worship section of the four marks, right? Um, but the Bible mentions it separately, and I think I know why. Yes, there was prayer um, in the temple worship and in these house gatherings. Uh, there was prayer over the breaking of bread. There was prayer in the communion liturgy that was early informed and eventually was solidified. But this Christian gathering for prayer is more than that. It was practicing the prayer of guidance, the prayer of listening, the prayer of discernment. These people believed that the risen and reigning Jesus would guide them if they would just but wait and partner in prayer together. Right now, like what I mean by that is right now during this season, our nominating committee is engaged in praying over our church. Our nominating committee is me and Anne and Marsha McAvoy and Ryan Leckie. And we're praying over the right person that God might have to replace Charlotte Kudo when she steps off the lead team in June. Now, we know a lot of people in the church, and we've got lists of who's partners, and we can just pick, like, well, who hasn't done it recently, and who's really good at leading stuff, and who's really Christian-y? But we're practicing the prayer of discernment together, of praying, of waiting, of not jumping to, well, obvious it's this person, because they're just so spectacular. Jesus speaks to us through his through Spirit. He speaks through prayer when we still ourselves, when we listen. Your leadership team prays over every one of you on a regular basis. And when we gather, we pray for direction and wisdom and the leading of Jesus as a church. In our small groups, people will often seek the leading of Jesus in prayer for big life decisions that are weighing heavy on them or when they're walking through the valley of life's pains together. 
Prayer like this, right, if you, if you were part of a Christian community for a while, prayer like this seems common. It's as common as we're used to 50 different brands of coffee down the aisle at Hagen uh, at the supermarket, but they don't have, they don't have primer, so yeah. <laughs> but the fact that Jesus has made himself directly accessible, without a priest, without the need of special words or formulas. This is a unique gift that we've been given as the church. It's one of the primary ways that Jesus meets with us and forms us, not just in our prayers of asking him for stuff, but our prayers of sitting quietly. Hi, Samara. How old are you, Samara? Six. Yesterday you were bored, weren't you? Weren't you bored? And I did a total pastor-dad thing. I said, it's good for you to be bored. Because when you're not entertaining yourself or watching something or laughing at something I'm trying to do to entertain you, you're who you really are. Now, I had just read that in my devotional, so I was all like, sage wisdom from dad who was just on his phone. <laughs> but it's serious. When we are still before the Lord, there's nothing else to distract me from the mess that I really am. And it's in those moments that he can really speak and, and really reveal what's going on in us and do his deep internal work. That's what we're talking about in this sense that they prayed. What are you going through in life? Are you worrying more than you're praying about it? Have you invited someone in on it to pray with you, whether it's just one person or a small group or the church? I ask these questions of myself, too. They're not convicting in the sense I'm trying to evoke guilt. They're intended to encourage us to connect with the life of Jesus that is available to us. In the end, these spirit-filled practices, common in the church but extraordinary in the world, are, are marks of the church. Worship gathering into small groups over food, fellowship, and worship, giving of resources for the good of the community, and prayer. I promise I'm closing now <laughs> with an invitation and an encouragement. The invitation is to come to Jesus. If you have yet to repent and be baptized, yet to commit your life to Jesus, yet to receive his Holy Spirit, you can do that now. You can respond. You can say, yes, I have been sitting on the fence. I want in. Talk to me after the service. Talk to a brother or sister in Christ that you trust, that you've been watching as you've been coming. We'll help you with next steps. As I look out on this room, though, I also see a lot of people who have already been baptized, who are already following Jesus. I just want to encourage you that the Holy Spirit is with you. You, you remember when Jill Briscoe came last year, if you were lucky enough to hear her, she talked about the Holy Spirit. She said there's a lot of anxiety in the church that people think, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't know if I have the Holy Spirit. She said, let me just remind you of some basic theology. The Trinity, one and three, three and one. You cannot have Christ and not have the Spirit. Like you, you try separating those two or those three. Good luck with that. You can't have Christ. You can't have the Father without the Spirit. You have the Spirit if you've been baptized in Christ. Okay? But maybe you've grown hardened or jaded or 
frustrated or apathetic. I have good news for you. It may not seem like it right now. I just want to say that's normal. That's normal. It's normal for us to go through bouts and seasons like that. It's normal. And these early church leaders, even within one generation, were writing about stuff like this. And they encourage us to pray, to ask for forgiveness, to invite the life of the Spirit, to change us from the inside out, to give us a love for His Word, to give us a love for worship with the people, to move us, to join in the hospitality and the intimacy of the church, to free us from fear of not having enough so that we can give what we have and trust the Lord to provide, to give us hearts of generosity, and we can ask for grace in prayer. I've never met a person who is just great at prayer for their whole life. Even the greatest prayers in the world that you read about in the spiritual classics, they're always talking about how bad at prayer they are. Whew, at least I'm not the only one. Can you imagine the Lord not wanting to answer any of these prayers? Help me to love you more. Help me to love the church more. Help me to be more generous, less fearful, and want to pray more. I think he wants to answer those. We can ask for those things. When's the last time we were just asking for those things? We make it so complicated, and it's so simple. And the encouragement is this. We live more, when we live more fully into the quality of this extraordinarily common life, the world will take note. People will want to know the Lord. They want to know the Lord who is responsible for this, this beautiful mess of the church. There are people you think have it all figured out, and they're longing for deep community. They're longing for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful for the work of your Spirit, for the good news that all of this stuff that you've revealed in Acts 2 and Acts 4, they're not commands for us to go strive and try and be and do all these things. They're, they're what happens when we submit ourselves to the work of your Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would meet us in this moment of confrontation with the, uh, what the church can be. Help us to rejoice for what the church is and all, all of its glory. Help us to lament over the ways that we've got it wrong. And, and make us the types of people right here in this local church that can be all you've called us to be. gracious and compassionate, your hands and feet on earth. Lord, we pray that our joy, that the love that we share and the power of your spirit would be a beacon of hope to our community and to the people in our lives that we love and want to know your love for them. Amen.